2: Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast.
4: Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims for a decade. I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.
5: September 10th, 2001, 7.18 p.m., Manhattan. The sun set five minutes ago, technically. Really, though, it's been dark for a while. Thunderstorms course through the city, pulsing and pausing, blackening the sky. This is the sound of that rain, the rain of 910, captured on video by a man named Andrés Barila. Standing in a department store across the street from the World Trade Center is Dr. Sneha Ann Phillip. At 7.18 p.m., 13 hours and 28 minutes before a Boeing 767 slams into one of the skyscrapers above, Sneha swipes her husband's credit card, grabs two bags, and exits onto the street. She's never seen again. Except that's not true. Sneha was seen again. We just don't know by whom. She stayed somewhere that night, though we don't know where. There is a grand story to be told of 9-11, of the world before and after. This is not that. This is the story of one missing woman and her family's quest to find her. The story of a 31-year-old newlywed on the precipice of life, a promising career in medicine ahead, of an artist, a poet, a sister, a daughter, someone loved, someone lost, someone who disappeared during a monumental moment in American history, Since September 10th, 2001, there's been no sign of Sneha, no DNA, nothing. In the absence of evidence, tabloids and Redditors alike poured over her personal life, her sexuality, her mental health, alcohol use, legal troubles. Sneha the victim, Sneha the hero, Sneha the troubled woman. But who was Sneha, really? Who is she? For My Heart Media, this is Missing on 9-11, the story of one woman who vanished on the eve of history and my quest to find her. I'm your host, John Walzak. Talk to people who knew Sneha, friend or foe, and you'll hear the same descriptors. Brilliant, beautiful, artistic, charismatic, and, depending on who you ask, either manipulative or, more generously, really good at getting what she wanted. Sneha was smart. I mean, brilliant. She spoke five languages—English, Russian, Italian, German, Malayalam. She loved books. She was philosophical and poetic. Though she grew up in a conservative Indian family, she was progressive. She considered herself a feminist, and she loved gay men, at a time when much of America didn't. Her art was typically abstract. She was a fan of Jackson Pollock. One day, much to her parents' surprise, she and a friend painted a mural in her family's basement. Sneha was ageless, smooth skin, wry smile, piercing brown eyes, black hair five, six, and 115 pounds, but fierce. Her life began on October 7, 1969, in Southwest India, in the state of Kerala. Three years later, her father won a visa lottery for doctors and moved the family, Sneha, her mother Anzu, and her older brother Ashwin, to Albany, New York. Three years after that, her younger brother John was born. As a kid, Sneha attended Ludenville Christian School And, later, Emma Willard School, an exclusive private academy that counts among its alumni, Jane Fonda and Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, who graduated the semester before Sneha arrived. Sneha ran track and played flute and the piano. She decorated her bedroom with posters of Billy Idol and Breakfast at Tiffany's. She idolized Audrey Hepburn and listened to Boy George and Duran Duran. In 1987, Sneha graduated from Emma Willard and moved to Baltimore to attend Johns Hopkins University, where she pursued both pre-med and creative writing studies. Whether or not Sneha really wanted to be a doctor depends on who you ask. Her family says yes. Nearly everyone else says no. They say she really wanted to be an artist. At Hopkins, Sneha was the treasurer of her sorority, Phi Mu. It was easy for her to make friends. On the outside, she was gregarious and extroverted approachable, and kind. But she also had an introverted streak, someone quick and witty who could turn inward. In May 1991, Sneha graduated from Hopkins. By 1993, she was in Seattle. Seattle in 93 was energy, the epicenter of American culture.
2: If you just graduated from college and you're looking for somewhere to go, and some were fun, some were cool, some were to get a start. Seattle seemed to be the place that everyone was heading.
5: Hugo Kugia, a reporter, knew Sneha, loosely. His girlfriend at the time was her roommate. They shared a house on Capitol Hill, a gritty, trendy, gay-friendly neighborhood.
2: You'd meet people who had, were from other places and, and nothing, no ties to Seattle at all. And uh, people who dressed well, uh, I remember that. And Sneha was one of those people. She was not white, she was cool, she dressed well, she was not from Seattle, um, oh, okay, yeah, you're like, you're one of those people, you're one of those cool people who have moved to Seattle. She was easy to talk to, she, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, some people are cool and cold and standoffish. as she was, not I, I remember that she was a warm person, easy to talk to, um,
6: easy to joke with.
5: While in Seattle, Sneha took classes at the University of Washington, or UW, and fell into the rave scene. She loved fashion, especially shoes, and she loved to dance. Her younger brother, John, joined her in Seattle for about a year. By the summer of 94, Sneha had moved east to attend the Chicago Medical School. One year later, Ron Lieberman arrived in Chicago, also to attend med school. Ron was a long-haired Jewish musician from Los Angeles. He was skinny, looked like Jesus, and played the guitar. In 1996, he and Sneha started dating. Sometime after that, in 96 or 97, Sneha took a year off from med school. She flew to Tuscany, Italy, where she spent six or seven months painting. She loved Tuscany. She could see herself living there permanently. During this time, Sneha pondered whether or not she really wanted to be a doctor or whether she should dedicate herself to art. It was in Tuscany that Ron proposed to her on the balcony of her apartment in Florence. She said yes, and after a blissful Tuscan escape, returned to Chicago and med school. In 1999, she and Ron graduated and moved to New York City. That July, they started their residencies. Ron at Jacoby Medical Center in the Bronx and Sneha at Cabrini Medical Center in Manhattan. Ron specialized in emergency medicine. Sneha wasn't sure what to do. Maybe oncology or neurology, or maybe she'd be an allergist. On May 13, 2000, Ron and Sneha got married at the Troutbeck, a luxurious inn in Amenia, New York. Their wedding was lavish and joyful. So much so, it was featured in a magazine, Grace Ormond Wedding Style, in 2001.
7: The night before the ceremony, in an ancient eight-hour Indian ritual, temporary designs were painted on the bride's hands and feet with henna, symbolizing her new marital status. Custom dictates that a woman remains a new bride as long as the design can still be seen. Spanish flamenco guitar music entertained guests before the ceremony, while classical Indian music featuring sitar and tabla drums provided the backdrop as the couple stood under an outdoor arbor over which a talit, or Jewish prayer shawl, was draped. While a guest sang an Indian song, Ron placed a tiny teardrop-shaped gold pendant and cross around Sneha's neck, symbolizing their marriage. He then wrapped the bride in a red silk wedding sari, elaborately woven with golden thread. The couple drank wine from a kiddush cup over which another guest had recited a traditional Jewish blessing. Ron ended the ceremony by smashing a glass underfoot in the Jewish tradition.
5: The year that followed, The summer of 2000 to the summer of 2001, that was the golden year. The year everything seemed right with the world. Seemed.
2: A Story of California Corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your
9: podcasts.
5: As I see it, there are four logical explanations for Sneha's disappearance. 9 11. Murder. She ran away and is alive. Suicide. But come on. Murder? Suicide? That she's alive? None of that makes sense. Here's the thing, though. Neither does 9 11. Not when you look at it closely. Nothing makes sense. So, what do you do when the person you love just vanishes? A wife? A sister? A daughter? Gone. Just gone. What do you do with that? Sneha's family settled on the hero narrative that Sneha was walking home on 9 11 and ran into the burning towers to help people. And really, can you blame them? Think of the pain, the grief, that leads a family to choose 9 11 as the answer. And although there's no proof yet that Sneha died on 9 11, officially that is the answer that she died in the attacks at the World Trade Center. For Sneha's family, this is all very painful. So I think it's important from the get-go to make clear what I hope to accomplish with this show. First, I want to tell you about real Sneha, not Reddit Sneha, the mystery woman. Second, I want to examine her disappearance closely. She deserves that. Finally, most of all, I want to find new information, answers. What I can promise you is the truth, all of it, as I know it. What I can't promise you is a neat, tidy ending. That's up to you. Yes, you. I'm speaking to the person Sneha stayed with on 9-10. You're out there. You never came forward. Not to her family, the cops, the press. Come forward. Now. Please. I'll protect your identity. And to anyone else with important information. You too. I'll let you know how to reach us at the end of the show. Any proper examination of Sneha's disappearance begins with a minute-by-minute account of 9-10. To piece together this timeline, I relied on court records, police records, and interviews. When possible, times are exact. When not, they're approximate. September 10th, 2001. Around 10.30 a.m., Sneha is in Manhattan Criminal Court, charged with assault, harassment, and falsely reporting an incident. A few months ago, she told police that a fellow doctor sexually assaulted her in a bar. Then, according to the NYPD, she recanted and proceeded to harass the doctor and his wife. This is the incident that her family believes led her to spiral downward. We'll get into it more later. With her today are her husband, Ron, and her attorney, Mark Freiberg. Her appearance is brief. The case is adjourned to a future date. What happens next is disputed. According to an NYPD detective, while exiting the courthouse, Sneha and Ron get into a heated argument. Ron says this never happened, and Mark Freiberg, Sneha's attorney, told me he doesn't remember any argument. He declined further comment. Sometime between 10.30 and 11.30. While walking a mile from the courthouse back to their apartment at 225 Rector Place, Ron and Sneha stop at a bank and pull $100 out of an ATM. They split the money. Between 11.15 and 11.30, Ron leaves for work. His shift starts at 1, and he doesn't want to be late. He has to catch the subway to the Bronx. Ron declined to speak to me, but here he is in 2002 on Unsolved Mysteries. kissed her, I told her I loved her, and
8: I left. Luckily, I left my keys at home. So I went back, and I got to kiss her again, and that was the last time that I saw her.
5: Before Ron leaves, Sneha tells him she's going to clean the apartment. They're hosting a small dinner party the next night, the 11th. She's excited because a shipment of orchids just arrived from Hawaii. She tells Ron that at some point she might take a walk. Early afternoon, Sneha meditates. She starts cleaning the apartment and repotting the orchids. Around 2 to 2.30, Sneha and her mom, Ansu talk via instant messenger probably AOL Instant Messenger, or AIM. They chat for one to two hours. Then Sneha tells Ansu that she better get back to cleaning. While no one disagrees that Sneha and Ansu talked via IM, records indicate that they also may have spoken by phone and or text, though I haven't been able to confirm that. Ansu declined to speak to me. Around four or five, Sneha signs off and tells her mom she's going to run errands. Between 5.15 and 5.30, Sammy Feliciano, a doorman, sees Sneha walk out the front of her apartment building. Sammy is the second to last person that we know of to see Sneha alive.
10: September 10th, what do you remember of September 10th? What hours did you work, and and what do you remember of that night?
6: September 10th was the the night before. I mean, the day before, of course, right? Uh. Mm-hmm. I worked a 3 three eleven shift as a uh, concierge. Um, I remember just working my shift, and then I'm going home.
10: Do you have any memories from that night, or is it just kind of to get lost in the aftermath of nine eleven?
6: No, I can't remember, honestly. I mean, I just know I did the night shift, and um, I, w- I remember being picked up by a friend of mine, and that's it. I can't remember much.
10: So I think the NYPD, maybe a private investigator spoke with you. I know it's been a really long time, but um, they
6: (laughs) I didn't didn't even remember that.
10: Well, they it listed you as the second to last person to see uh, Dr. Philip and it so I'm just going to I'm going to read you what what I found in the reports and tell me if any of it strikes a a chord. It said that you saw Dr. Philip leave the building sometime between 515 and 530. Do you have any memory of that?
6: Um, no, I don't.
10: Do you no, re- don't. Do you remember Dr. Philip? No,
6: that's the, that's the that's the other question. I mean, I don't have no memory of the person's, of that resident's name. I mean, per, face, I'm sorry, face. No memory of that face. Yeah,
10: but Sneha Philip, you recognize the name?
6: The name sounds very familiar. No. Just the face, I cannot pinpoint, I cannot put a face into it.
5: So, unfortunately, 20 years later, Sammy doesn't remember much. At the time, Sneha's apartment building, 225 Rector Place, was called Park with a C Place. Park Place. It's a 24-story building built in 1985. It had about 300 units. Google map it. It's about 900 feet southwest of the World Trade Center. By 9-11, 225 Rector was at about 95% occupancy. Many of its residents worked on Wall Street. I know which unit Ron and Sneha lived in, but I'm not publishing it. I don't want people to disturb the current owner, who, understandably, does not want publicity. What I can tell you is that it was a one-bedroom, that Ron and Sneha lived on one of the cheaper floors, and that their unit did not face the World Trade Center. 9.10. When Sneha leaves 225 Rector, sometime around 5.15 or 5.30 p.m., She's wearing a brown dress and sandals. Her dress is, according to Ron, quote, kind of a shirt-style dress that came to her knees, short sleeves. Later in court, Ron says she wore, quote, a knee-length, brown-collared, short-sleeved shirt dress with buttons down the front, sandals, a beaded black and gold choker with a teardrop-shaped cross pendant, a gold engagement ring with a diamond in the center, a gold wedding band with small diamonds studded around it, and earrings with diamond studs and flower shapes. Her toenails were painted purple. After she leaves the apartment, Sneha drops off dry cleaning. Then she walks to Century 21, a massive department store across the street from the World Trade Center, just east of the Twin Towers. Century 21, no relation to the real estate company, is a New York icon, a beloved spot where, for decades, shoppers could treasure hunt for discounted high fashion. I say could because in September 2020, Century 21 declared bankruptcy, citing the impact of the COVID pandemic. Earlier this year, the company's CEO, Raymond Gindy graciously gave me a final tour of the store, which will likely never reopen. It was emptied out, partially lit, and running on fumes with a skeletal staff. Close your eyes and wander around with me a 200,000-square-foot, six-story complex with flickering lights in the middle of a pandemic looking for the last known location of a woman who disappeared on the evening before 9-11.
10: Thanks for walking up all the escalators with us. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem.
8: Getting my workout.
5: I handed Dindi a printout of the last known image of Sneha, a still of her in the women's coat area captured by a security camera
8: so this is probably literally looking at this picture the area this was taken i think it was around here let me see or in this area here
10: so did the women's coat area was it in the same place in 2001 that it was until recently yeah yes it was so like when we're looking and that looks like a door or something i
8: think it's that door and i think that column is that column it's a sh- this picture was maybe taken over here someplace
10: wow okay and where are we on the top floor where are we we're on the fifth floor there's one more floor there's six floors
5: we tried to pinpoint the camera that caught the image
10: you think it's this one is is that a is that a camera is yeah. That a, okay. yeah all those domes always cameras well I know I think you're probably right because I imagine I mean either this would have been aimed more closely this way or the or the other way they had, like, they got it, so... Do you know how old these cameras are? Would they have been the cameras from 2001? No, probably not, because they
8: constantly... But the locations pretty much stay the same. They swap out the camera for technology, you know, for better... Gotcha. 605.
5: Sneha purchases several items, including lingerie and bed linens. 640. I found a single source that states Sneha made another purchase at this time though I haven't been able to confirm it. 7.13, the sun sets. 7.18, Sneha buys three pairs of shoes in a different part of the store. And here we have a critical question. Why wasn't Sneha captured on camera in the women's shoe area?
10: How widespread at the time was the um, security system in terms of like camera coverage? Because one thing that I read is that there were not security cameras in the women's shoe area. does that seem accurate to you?
8: I don't know. It's surprising. Because we pretty much have them everywhere. Yeah. I, don't, I would be surprised. It, it would... They're usually all over, like you see.
5: Gindy took me to the security room. It had one of those big mirror-like windows. I pressed my face against the
10: glass to see inside. The timeline of, of when Dr. Philip disappeared, um, the doorman at her building on Rector Place saw her leaving sometime around 5.15, 5.30. But... Obviously, if you look at this still from the security footage, you know, it says 165724, so 457 roughly. Do you know by chance if the time was calibrated or correct or off or? Sorry, I have no idea. I figured. I figured. I'm asking you yeah. if the, the time on a security camera was correct yeah. 20 years ago. But I, but, but
8: I did hear that there was a transaction done mm-hmm. at like around 6 p.m. or something.
10: Yeah. So there, as far as I know, there were, I believe, two transactions. One was uh, for lingerie, bed linens, um, and then the last was for three pairs of shoes. So, so we're the she was caught on camera in exactly where we're standing right now, browsing women's coats. Where, uh, where would lingerie, bed linens, and then also women's shoes, in relation to where we are right now, where, where all would
8: different be? areas? So, so lingerie would have been a couple of floors down, uh, probably on three. Bed linens would be in the basement of this building, and then to get to shoes, it makes sense that she paid two transactions to get the shoes. It's in a separate building on the other side, and it makes sense that she paid for it and then went to those buildings, kind of like an annex.
10: Where she shopped separately in the shoe area which building what streets just so can it
8: faces on broadway the shoe annex okay. uh, and it th- there's a way to connect from here without going outside but it's kind of circuitous some people just go out the front door and, and walk next door it's easier
10: so how far how big of a complex? So i'm gonna have to look at google maps how big of a complex is this you said it's five six buildings yeah. total
8: i mean so basically it fronts the main street on church street which is to the west and it, it goes through the series of buildings to Broadway, which is the east. So it's almost a full square block, although a couple of chunks are, are not part of the
10: store. But it makes sense that she would work her way to shoes and then that would be her final transaction. Yes. Yeah. And then if she was exiting, um, having purchased shoes, would she walk out on Broadway or? Probably. OK. That makes the most sense.
5: Sometime between 7.20 and 7.30, Sneha exits Century 21, probably onto Broadway. She carries two bags with $550 worth of shoes, bed linens, and lingerie. It's still raining on and
0: off.
7: It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish.
2: Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host,
4: That
9: thunderstorm was so, oh, I don't know how to say, it was so strangely beautiful that it was eerie. It was like something is happening, something is coming. I don't know what it is. I'm going to have to record this.
5: On 9:10, Monica Bravo is an artist-in-residence at the World Trade Center, working out of an empty space on the 92nd floor of the North Tower. That evening, she captures video as rain rolls into the city. As Sneha shops below, Monica films from above. Later, Monica turns her footage into a work of art called September 10th, 2001, Uno Nunca Muere la Víspera, which translates to, roughly, it's impossible for you to die on the eve of your death. Monica waited all summer for this rain to film it.
9: It started at 255, if I'm not wrong. It started like, like you know when you see the storm coming mm-hmm. and you see like the big cloud like low? And you go oh shit i'm gonna get all wet like like that and then it's dark and you see like it's like a dark monster coming and i started seeing it in, in, from the window and that's when i started taping and it's fascinating how fast that um cloud came over that it just touches the window with a drop of water i don't know if you see it in the first seconds of the film it's just like you see the storms coming and then immediately you know the storm is present when it's the first few drops on the on the on the window and you know you are part of the storm so it did not stop until probably 9 p.m it was it was always raining and there was lightning at the end a very frightening lightning i used to be so scared of lightning until that day and you know what made me get like rid of that fear was that <laughs> this is my thought then not right so oh that's gonna happen to me i'm in Taiwan. we have the I don't know how to say it in, in English, pararrayos, you know, this thing that the is. The lightning rod right? The
10: you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah, we yeah. Have
9: that. So I was like, I'm safe here. First, I'm going to be dead, I don't know, from another fire, but not here. I, I was thinking about fire the whole time I was there. The moment I leave that night, I take the tape and I thought, maybe I should take everything else. And I said, well, no, there wouldn't be a fire. But I was thinking all the time about fire. And I looked at the, at the water sprinkles and I said, oh no, there's sprinkles here, we're gonna be fine.
5: Around midnight, Monica leaves the North Tower, less than nine hours before American Airlines Flight 11 slams into it, one floor above. There are only two artists left on the 92nd floor. One, Jeff, leaves after Monica. The other, Michael Richards, a sculptor, sleeps in the tower that night and dies in the attack the next day. 11 p.m. Sammy Fliciano, Sneha's doorman, ends his shift at 225 Rector. Sneha hasn't returned to the apartment. Neither has her husband, Ron. Around 11.15, Ron returns home from work. Sneha is not there, nor are her bags. There's no sign she's been in the apartment since she left about six hours earlier. Here again is Ron on Unsolved Mysteries.
0: Sometimes she would feel uncomfortable staying by herself at home. And her brother lives very close by and her cousin also lives very close by. So she would sometimes go spend the night with them. And I thought, well, maybe she just decided to stop at her brother's house or uh, her cousin.
5: Around midnight, Ron goes to sleep. 9-11, 4.05 a.m someone places a call from the apartment landline to Ron's cell phone. Ron has no memory of making that call. Next time on Missing on 9-11.
2: We just had a a plane crash into Alpha four of the World Trade Center, transmit
0: a second alarm, and start relocating companies into the area.
5: Before we go... I wanna let you know that at the end of each episode, I'll be giving you homework, something you can do, some way you can help move the story forward. And then I'll give you our tip line and email where you can send us information or even documents. Some of these tasks will be interactive and relatively easy. Some will be specialized and difficult. The goal is to add you, our audience, to our investigative team. This week, one, did you know Sneha? Two. Do you have any unpublished images or video captured in Lower Manhattan on September 10th, 2001, or on 9-11? 3. did Sneha stay with you on 9-10? If so, please reach out to us. If you want, we'll protect your identity. You can reach us by phone at 1-833-NEW-TIPS. That's 1-833-639-8477. Again, one 833 Six three nine eight four seven seven, Or you can reach us via email at tips at iheartmedia.com. That's tips, T-I-P-S, at iheartmedia.com. Ben Bolin is our executive producer. Paul Deakin is our supervising producer. Chris Brown is our assistant producer. Seth Nicholas-Johnson is our producer. Sam Teagarden is our research assistant. And I'm your host and executive producer, John Walsack. Cover art by Pam Peacock. Special thanks to Tamika Campbell at iHeart and to Christoph Zappery in New Orleans. Also, thank you to Sammy Fliciano, Raymond Gindy, Hugo Kugia, Monica Bravo, Andres Barila, and Aesop Rock. Original theme music by Aesop Rock. Check out Aesop's website at Aesoprock.com. Wedding article voiced by Annie Reese. Archival audio from Unsolved Mysteries provided by Cosgrove Mirror Productions. Audio of the Reign of 910 provided by Andres Barila. You can find him on Twitter at B A R R I L A. You can view Monica Bravo's art at MonicaBravo.com, M O N I K A Bravo.com. And you can find me on Twitter at, at John J O N W A L C Z A K. If you like this show, check out our first season, Missing in Alaska, about the 1972 disappearance of two congressmen. Missing on 9-11 is a co-production of iHeartMedia and Greenfort Media. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In
1: my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.
3: MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level.